His Excellencies, members of the LSE community, and dear guests, good afternoon and welcome to a public lecture organized by the LSE Chair on Contemporary Turkish Studies. The LSE Chair on Contemporary Turkish Studies was established with the support of public and private institutions from Turkey and was inaugurated with a ceremony here at LSE attended by the Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan in 2005. The chair is located at the European Institute at LSE. In addition to offering courses, it conducts research and organizes seminars and public lectures on contemporary Turkey and its relations with the European Union. In addition to the LSE chair, many people have contributed to the organization of this special event. I would like to thank all of these individuals. We are privileged this afternoon to have as our speaker a distinguished statesman and a prominent political scientist, Ahmed Davudolu, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Turkey. Ahmed Davudolu was born in Konya, Turkey. He graduated from Bosphorus University in Istanbul with a double major in political science and economics. Davudolu later received his PhD degree in political science and international relations from the same university. He then taught at the International Islamic University at Malaysia, where he established and chaired the political science department. He's also taught at, as professor at Marmara University and Baykent University in Istanbul, where he served as the head of the department of international relations and a member of the university senate. Following the November 2002 elections, Ahmed Davutoglu was appointed as chief advisor to the prime minister and ambassador. In May 2009, he was appointed as the minister of foreign affairs of Turkey. Ahmed Davutoglu has published many scholarly articles and books, including the civilizational transformation and the Muslim world, strategic depth, and the global crisis. Strategic depth, which has been translated into many languages, is very well known in academia and has played an important role in the reformulation of Turkish foreign policy in recent years. Ahmed Davutoglu was listed by the journal Foreign Policy as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2010. Professor Davutoglu is married with four children. Since 2011, he's a member of the parliament representing Konya. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Foreign Minister Ahmed Davutoglu to London School of Economics. Professor Pamuk, 
distinguished academicians, dear students, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. It is a great pleasure for me to be with you in uh, LSE and addressing to such a distinguished audience. Whenever I visit academic institutions, I feel myself more an academician than a minister. Therefore, please be ready for a long lecture <laughs> rather than a diplomatic speech. Today, we had Friends of Yemen group meeting in London. And when I received this invitation, of course, uh, it was a great honor for me to visit LSE, Chair on Contemporary Turkish Studies. And thank you very much, Professor Pamuk, for uh, this introduction and invitation. Uh, because this chair is for, very important for us, which started in 2005 uh, as the only chair on contemporary Turkish studies in Europe and made great contribution uh, as a channel, intellectual bridge between Turkish and European academia as well as statesmen and leaders. And therefore I am also grateful and I would like to express our appreciation for the contributors to this chair uh, Central Bank of Turkey, Federation of Turkish Chambers of Commerce, Aydın Doğan Foundation and Akfen Holding uh, Company for their great contribution. Because in these years we need to have more intellectual interaction because we, are, we, we, we have many challenges in front of us. And I am also very proud of having uh, 400 Turkish academicians and 2,500 students in uh, British academic institutions, which shows how Turkish-British relations are deep and the future of Turkish-British intellectual relation will be much more brighter than before. Therefore, I also want to express my thanks to organizers and also to students, especially from Network of Students group, for their uh, presence here and their contribution to uh, this organization. Uh, the title of my speech is Transformation in World Politics and how can we address to the challenges, regional challenges regarding this, during this transformation of world politics. In 1989, when the famous article of Francis Fukuyama was published on the end of history, I was almost completing my PhD thesis on alternative para paradigms, a comparative analysis of Western and Muslim political thinking. In, uh, after that uh, article being published, I wrote a, an article and uh, the title was that the history will not end. The history will flow faster than before. The speed of history will be accelerated. After 20 years, of course, I never planned to be a minister or a politician. I was planning to write more books and to be with students rather than with bodyguards in London streets. <laughs> but it was a great test for me after publishing my book on Turkish foreign policy in post called Varara, uh, which is Tragic Death, published in 2001, I was asked to be chief advisor. And in the last 10 years, I tried to make a bridge between theory and practice in a very challenging atmosphere, political atmosphere, in a very challenging international environment. Therefore, I want to share some of my both theoretical analysis as well as practical experience with you, how to understand this transformation in world politics. I said I strongly believe 
that the history will flow faster. And we, intellectuals and statesmen, we are like uh, drops of waters in a very fast-flowing river. History is flowing right like a river, and we are in that river. That was my uh, introductory uh, uh, part of strategic depth. And we have to understand how this river is flowing. If we want to have a role in this flow, then we have to understand the flow of history. In that sense, of course, we can make a long historical analysis. But at least I can say, in the last 400 years, during modernity, there has been always a search for order in European as well as in world politics after great wars. Before we had imperial traditions, Alexandrian, Roman, Byzantine, Ottoman, Chinese dust dynasties, Indian dynasties, they, they had another logic of global order. But during modernity, after every war, there was some sort of congress or conference or search for a new order. Like after 30 years war, we had uh, Westphalian peace. After Napoleonic War, we had Congress of Vienna and balance of power system in Europe. After First World War, we had League of Nations. After Second World War, we had United Nations and Britain Wood system in economics. Now the question is here. What happened after Cold War? Cold War was, uh, as well, a global-scale war. And there was a need of reconstruction of world order after Cold War, like what happened after Second World War, there were several conferences, meetings, in order to identify the basic dynamics of the new global context. But after 20 years, now we can ask to ourselves, was there a real restoration of world order within the context of the changes in post-Cold War situation? Unfortunately, we, have to, we, 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 we should say no. What happened in the last 20 years, now more than 20 years, after the Cold War? The domestic uh, structures have changed in Balkans, in many countries, I will come to that point. The regional context has changed in many regions, including Middle East or Central Asia or Latin America or Africa. The global context has changed, and there are new challenges. It is not like when I was a student like some of our students here, in 1970s, our imagination of world politics was much more different than today. It was more static, two superpowers, two blocks, dividing almost all regions in between these two blocks. And the role of other nations were less compared to superpowers and great powers. Now the situation is much more dynamic. When I wrote my book, Strategic Depth, I tried to analyze this from Turkish perspective. You can change everything in foreign policy, economic capacity, technological capacity, or military capacity. But you cannot change two things, your geography, space, and your history, time. These are the limits which are given to you. Therefore, first as a human being, then as an intellectual of a nation or statesman of a nation, you have to understand what is the time, the existing time constraint, in order to respond to these challenges. In the last 20 years, 
we had three big earthquakes. Earthquake is a good analogy for Turks, especially after 1999 earthquakes. One earthquake was in 1991, after two years after the fall of Berlin Wall, which is a geopolitical earthquake, which was all geopolitical scene and polarization from Balkans to Central Asia has changed because of the collapse of Soviet Union and wars in Balkans. And Turkey was right at the center of this change. I will come to this, to this analysis back. The second earthquake was security earthquake in 2001, after 9-11. Because there was a change of rhetoric, political rhetoric conceptualization of world politics. After the first uh, earthquake, the main rhetoric was democracy, freedom, the new world order, I am sure those who know those years, they know very well, the new world order in 19, early 1990s, democratization. After 9-11, instead of liberty and democratization, the political uh, paradigm has shifted to security and more control. You can feel this in airports or other places, and of course the world politics have changed responding to these security challenges of terrorism. And it affected cultural relations. It has affected intercommunal relations in uh, many places. Even the personal lives have been affected. I had uh, my former uh, special advisor, a diplomat, now he's ambassador to uh, Prague. He told me uh, one of his experience his name is Jihad. Uh, he came to New York after 9-11. He was appointed to New York. In the airport, uh, somebody, some people were waiting for him, and they were not able to see each other, and they shouted, Jihad, Jihad. <laughs> Suddenly, all those who are in between these two groups, they lie down and try to escape. Even a concept. Jihad is... Uh, Muslim concept and does not mean only war but several other ethical uh, meaning in it. But suddenly the concepts have changed. The attitudes have changed. I remember Hrant Dink, a prominent Armenian Turkish uh, columnist. We were in 2002 in the same panel and uh, he told me his son was at that time in the US. Uh, he was uh, uh, beaten by some people thinking that he was a Muslim because his skin was dark, although he was a Christian. So suddenly, this, compared to 1990s, the political rhetoric has changed as if there is a new Cold War and cultural polarization. And Turkey had to respond to this as well as a Muslim nation in Western Bloc to accept certain challenges. And the third biggest earthquake was in 2011. It started from 2008, global economic crisis, and in 2011 it reached to the peak in European economic crisis, parallel to Arab Spring. An economic crisis and a political crisis in the north and south of Mediterranean 
created new challenges for all those who are living in that region as well as global challenges. Now, we are living in such an accelerated flow of history. We cannot be static. We cannot have prejudices in our minds. We cannot have stereotypes if we want to understand this new global transformation. How should we address to this? First of all, there is a political change. There is no more, like Cold War, a Eurocentric or Euro-Atlantic plus, uh, including Soviet Union, center of world politics anymore. There, is, there are new rising powers. The politics of, uh, uh, the la language of politics have changed, structures of politics have changed, and there is a need of a new response to this. For example, can we say today, as a question, as a global order, UN system based on five permanent members who are able to decide for the entire political issues of humanity. Do they, from what is the legitimacy of having this structure? In 1950s, 60s, 70s, they had a legitimacy because of being winner of Second World War. But now, I can give you two examples. The, just to show the gap, the gap between the human conscious and political mechanisms of UN Security uh, Council. Which institution represent human consciousness in world politics? Is it UN Security, UN Security Council or UN General Assembly? UN General Assembly is composed of all nations, 192 nations while UN Security Council have 15, five permanent members, and the rest non-permanent. Of course, if you look at the inclusiveness, UN General Assembly represents the general human conscious, while UN Security Council represents operational capacity and efficiency and power politics. We need both. But at the end of the day, which one will be prevailing? The judgment of which of these body will be representing human judgment. I will give two examples. One is Palestine. In 1947, 29th of November, UN General Assembly promised to Palestinians that they will be having a state on their own, parallel to Israel. Israel was established, but for many decades, Palestinians have been waiting the fulfillment of that promise. And last year, Mahmoud Abbas applied full membership for UN system. It was, it was not uh, able, this application was not able to go through the UN Security Council mechanisms. And they went directly to UN General Assembly. And I was in that meeting, 29th November 2012, and 138 countries said yes for Palestinian state. Only nine countries said no. And that was such a clear message by international community that they want to see Palestine as a member state of UN. But are they able to be there? No, because 
even if one country vetoes this application in the United Security Council, they cannot be member. Second example, Syria. Next week will be the second anniversary of Syrian people requesting their legitimate rights with, at the beginning with peaceful demonstrations. From that time until now, more than 70,000 people being killed, those who we know the names. Another 70 to 100,000 being lost. Only in Turkey we have around 350,000 refugees, 187,000 are in camps. Just to give human aspect of this, in last two years, 2,904 babies were born in our camps. 26,000 children are getting education every day. So a life is continuing there. But three million people inside Syria are IDPs. And two years passed. What has been the response of UN system? Because of veto this time, two other countries. I don't want to name the country. Here I will be a little bit diplomatic. <laughs> but everybody knows who vetoed Palestine, and everybody knows who uh, two countries vetoed for Syria. Again, a resolution in UN General Assembly submitted by Arab League, supported by Turkey, was accepted with 135 or 36 votes. Only 11 or 12 were against. But that uh, common rationale or uh, human conscience did not reflect to UN Security Council. Two countries can block. Even one country can block. What is the response of UN to the people of Syria on the ground now who do not have any food, uh, shelter, food, or basic needs of their lives? Then it means there is a, there is a crisis here. We have to respond. This is the political challenge of global system. UN today does not respond to these challenges properly. I, do, I can give you many other examples on environment, climate change, etc., etc., where, where the national interest prevails the common destiny of humanity. I remember last year, uh, two years ago, in the uh, General Assembly, uh, in a meeting chaired by my dear Mexican colleague uh, on environmental issue, I took the floor, I said, in all issues, we, we are representing our nations as ministers of foreign affairs. But there are certain issues we should act not as foreign ministers of nation states, but as interior minister of humanity. And here, one of these cases is environmental issue. Because the human destiny, the, the human uh, future, future, future of humanity is under danger. Here we cannot speak just in the name of our nations. We have to speak in the name of our, all humanity. Because if there is no ontological existence, there cannot be political existence. But do we act really with this conscious to, in, in environmental issues or other issues? This is a challenge. 
History is flowing very fast, but our response of our international organization is too slow to address these challenges. Therefore, today, two years passed, and still there is no UN Security Council resolution. The same thing happened in Bosnia in 1990s. Three years passed, there was no UN resolution, and after so many years, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon went to Serebrenica to apologize because of this delay, because of that. More than 100,000 ladies were raped, more than 300,000 people were killed, there were thousands of orphans, etc. Why do we need UN? We need UN right in, at these critical times. I am sure maybe after five or six years or ten years, some one another UN Secretary General will go to Homs and apologize from Syrian people. There is another change in paradigm of economic order. Before we had a paradigm of developmental change in economic order. There are developed countries and the others should reach to these countries. That was the paradigm before. But now there is a shift of economic paradigm. Economic power is shifting from transatlantic to other uh, uh, regions. And at the same time, there is a question of new economic order in the sense of consumerism against economic justice. If people in Somalia are dying because of hunger, and if four or five or ten five-star hotels are consuming more food than total Somalian people are consuming in one year, is this order sustainable? We went to Somalia with Prime Minister Erdogan 2011 August. We observed how they suffered. Now Turkey is chairing LDC, least developed countries group, in order to help how we can have access to least developed countries. Wherever I go in Africa or in Myanmar, when we see and observe this imbalance, between lifestyles and economic power and consumption of different regions. We can only say, without a new understanding of justice and distribution of economic wealth, there cannot be a sustainable economic order. Then we cannot blame those who will be challenging to this order. Again, here, we cannot just try to maximize our national economic interest. But we have to look for a new solution, how to help those who do not have even the basic needs of, for their daily life. People were asking us, why, in, even in Turkey? We spent, Mr. Pamuk, $600 million to Syrian refugees. We were criticized in the parliament, why do we spend such money? We are not an oil-rich country. We are spending this money from the pocket of our people. Yes, but this is a test, an ethical test for all of us. If one day we will be living with Syrian brothers and sisters next to each other, it is right today to help them, to share our bread, to share our destiny. Many people questioned, again, 
why Turkey spent $300 million to Somalia. We don't have any national interest. Yes, but we have a huge ethical ideal to help them. And today, if you go to Somalia, all Turkish NGOs are there. There is only one flight, one uh, access to Mogadishu. It is Turkish Airlines, one flight, international flight, from Istanbul to Mogadishu. There is only one embassy functioning in, in Mogadishu. And uh, there is uh, only Turkish, there are Turkish NGOs. And now we are building parliament, we are building uh, ministerial uh, buildings, etc., etc. I am not here to praise Turkish efforts, but we have responsibility to all humanity. National interest and human responsibility to respective regions and global issues should be balanced. Third challenge, global cultural challenge. We are all here, most probably 80-90% of uh, when I look at the faces, at least 70% are uh, Euro, uh, European uh, <coughs> students and academicians. But we have to be aware that the Eurocentric culture reached to limits. Now there is a rise of authentic cultures, of all traditions. We have to admit them. We have to embrace them. We have to create a new cultural inclusiveness. Otherwise, global order, global cultural order could not be restored. If we, as Huntington or some people, think that these cultures will be clashing, then based on that there cannot be an order, there will be only a chaos. There is a need for a new paradigm of cultural inclusivity and interaction of authentic cultures and modernity. Just to share one experience in an academic atmosphere, that was a positive cultural shock for me. When I completed my PhD thesis, I received two invitations, one from an American institution, another one from Malaysia. I especially prefer to go to Malaysia to study authentic civilizations, especially Indian civilization, Chinese civilization, and to write my book, Civilization Transformation. And I taught in a Muslim Malay uh, university, lived in a Chinese neighborhood, and I didn't miss any Indian festival like Taipusam or Depavali with my children. I remember the first day when I entered the classroom. It was a positive culture shock, as I said. I was asked to teach history of political thought. I liked that course, combination of intellectual and historical events. But when I entered the room, it was just the op opposite of this structure. I, it was like a small United Nations. One third of the room were, were Malay, another one third were Chinese and Indian, another one third international students from Africa, from Latin America. I had even one student from El Salvador, I still remember. And I looked at my textbook, which I brought to the classroom. That textbook was uh, starting with Greek philosophy, continuing with Romans, with then uh, Christianity and Middle Ages, then Reform and Re Renaissance, then modernity, Marxism, Hegel, end of history. Where is, 
Where is China? Chinese civilization was at least three, four thousand older than Greek. I don't undermine Greek. I, I admire Greek philosophy that we owe very much. But where is Indian history? Where is African tradition? Latin American tradition? When we teach these textbooks, as Thomas Kuhn used as a paradigm, in fact, we are recreating a new mentality, as if history started from Greece and continued with that sequence in Europe and around Mediterranean. The rest is not part of history. When I, I thought if I teach this course book, this textbook, I, I would say indirectly to those, all those students, at least 90% of the students, that they are not part of history. Their ancestors did not contribute to the history. What does it mean? It is not only historical rejection, but it is also, it also brainwashing that they cannot play a role in the, hist in the future because if you don't have any history, how can you be part of the history in the future as a subject? Now, can this paradigm survive or prevail if we accept this cultural prejudice? Of course, I didn't show my textbook. I went and I wrote, collected uh, a new textbook, starting with Confucius, going to Indian Rig Vedas, Upanishads, uh, Muslim philosophy, some African thinking, modern thinking, etc. whatever I found. Now, what we need is cultural inclusivity, not cultural clash. So these political challenges, political challenge of international organizations to respond to international issues, there is a need of a new political approach of political participation and multilateralism, starting with UN. Economic challenge, the key term is economic justice and efficiency together. And cultural challenge is cultural inclusivity, inclusiveness. If we want to have one day, we hope we will, a real the end of history, I, it will not happen, but that history, and could be a success only if all humanity is part of that process. Not declaring the victory of one side against the other. There should not be any feeling of victim, being victimized or being defeated. This is the old Cold War logic. You have to defeat the other side in order to survive. Here, we should not be defeating each other for survival. We need to show solidarity to each other for our own survival in the future. This is the global challenge. And there is a need of a new global order, political, economic, and cultural order. Now coming to closer to our regions, regional order, not global, but regional order. I will give two examples. One example, one challenge regarding economic crisis in Europe. In fact, EU was a good example of a regional or continental order. After so many wars in Europe, European nations came together and in fact created a new order through EU. And Cold War meant the end of division of EU, Europe, European continent, Berlin Wall or other continents, and European Union being united. This is a success. And we hope this success can continue. But now there is an economic crisis. There are new challenges in front of us. 
What are the challenges? Again, we can use the same, not Holy Trinity, but the same three columns of our analysis. The political challenge of EU is geopolitical relevance in the future. 19th century was European century. And Europe got more share. We have a leading economic historian here. I don't want to uh, give a lesson on that. But until early 19th century, the economic share of Asia was around 65 to 70%, while Europe was just 12 to 20% in different analysis. But in 1920, after 100 years, Europe had reached to the peak, especially after the colonial expansion of British and French colonial systems. Almost 78% were produced by European powers. But beginning of the uh, 21st century, again, it has been equalized, and now to, back to 20 25%. And in 2050, it will be almost same like early 19th century, 1800. So we have to see this economic challenge. First geopolitical challenge, can Europe still be so efficient in defining and finding solution for these global challenges, geopolitical relevance? Second, economic competition. Can Europe continue to be economically competitive against the new rising economic powers like India, like China, like Brazil? And third, can Europe be culturally inclusive as a new continent rather than old Eurocentric culture will prevail and Europeans will teach each other this European culture when the real cultural forces in the world is going to another direction. There are two options for Europe to continue to be successful. Either EU and European continent, but EU here, will be geopolitically relevant and influential, economically competitive and efficient, culturally inclusive and accommodative, then Europe continued to be one of the leading force in world affairs. Or Europe will be geopolitically irrelevant, is not able to decide pro, uh, in a quick, in a fast manner to regional crisis. I will give a good example, but let me complete this. Economically less competitive, economy, uh, culturally exclusive. That Europe will be out of history, will be inward looking, reactive, defensive continent. Now I can ask a question here. What is the key for the first option? Proudly and humbly, I can say the key is Turkey. <laughs> if Europe wants to be geopolitically relevant, should have access to Asia, should have access to Middle East, should have access to Caspian Sea, Indian Sea, Africa even, they, they need Turkey. To be competitive against cheap labor of India or uh, young population <laughs> of uh, China, they need Turks, not only Turkey, but Turks in Europe. To be culturally inclusive, the easiest 
culture, closest culture, if there is an the other compared to China, India, or other Muslim countries, uh, cultures, Turkey is the most European culture in that sense. If you cannot include Turkey, which other culture can you include? <laughs> if you cannot accept a history of a nation which ruled in, you may like or dislike, but Turks ruled half of Europe for four centuries. If you do not include this or understand this history, how can you understand Chinese or Indian history? If you don't use Ottoman archives, you cannot write history of Europe. If you cannot use Ottoman archives, how can you refer to uh, Chinese or Indian archives? Will you go back to Aryan history in order to reach India? You will go to India or China through Turkey. This is the challenge. And as Turks, we are well aware and we are self-confident. In the last 10 years, what we are trying to do is to understand this flow of history, to respond to these challenges in a fast manner. Once, three years ago, with some European colleagues, I don't want to give the names, but they are all very close friends of mine, we were in a meeting. And one of them said they were talking on the efficiency of European foreign policy, around 10, 11 leading ministers, they asked me a question. How come Turkey is following such an active foreign policy? I told them, let me give you an example. If today, at this moment, we were far away from uh, in a, in a uh, resort area, uh, let me say in Finland, in Scandinavia, if there is a crisis in any country right now, and I got information, in one hour latest, I will collect all the information. And I will make an analysis and I will produce a solution or an approach or a policy. Then I will consult with my prime minister, with my president by phone. And in two hours latest, we will have a national position regarding to this crisis. My plane is waiting in 20 minutes distance. I will take the plane, I will land to that country in up to the distance in three, four hours, but latest in six, seven hours, we will be part of this process. This way or the other way, we will have a position. But if you want to develop a position, first you, all of you will get your national informations. Then Brussels will ask to all of you, what is your national position? Each of you will have different position, most probably, at least three, four positions will emerge. And Brussels try to uh, bring them together in one policy. And if there are three, four positions, and if you try to make a compromise out of four positions, it means you will have a position, no position. Uh, uh, because in order to make a compromise, you will cut uh, some parts of these policies. After three, four days, maybe sometimes one week, you will make a joint statement. This time, that crisis will be over, another crisis will start. If history runs so fast, political leaders cannot act slowly. Otherwise, history will be faster than you, and you will try to catch history. As Turkey, I said in one of our last ambassador's conference, I addressed to our ambassador, I said, you will not run after history. You will run in the history and you will lead in front of the history. 
You may do wrong. We, can, we are not perfect. We may sometimes may do mistakes. But even doing a mistake could be corrected. But if you don't have any position, there is even nothing to be corrected. For many decades, that was my main critic to Turkish foreign policy when I wrote my book. Turkey was neutral, was a bridge. I don't like the term bridge. Bridge is a passive entity between two sides. There are two sides and you are bridge. No. We are part of both of the sides. We are part of all these events. So this is the challenge for EU as a continental and regional order. The second challenge is now in Middle East and North Africa. There is a new search for a new regional order in North Africa and Middle East. What is the first, when uh, Ebu Azizi burned himself in Tunisia, we made an analysis. Personally, theoretically, I tried to understand what is going on, and then I submitted our analysis to our cabinet. And in one cabinet meeting, chaired by a prime minister, we took a decision. Our analysis was this. What is, going, what is going on in Tunisia is a first indication of a change, which has already been delayed. And this change is not a change of clash because of a clash between sects or ethnicities or religions. But this is a change of uh, re reacting to Cold War structures. Cold War structure has ended in Balkans in 1990s but continue to survive in Middle East 20 years more. These regimes were out of history in the sense of following the new technologies, the new instruments, the new structures, the new logic. I can give you, I told this in Egypt, immediately after the revolution when I went there, when I met with the revolutionaries of Tahrir youth, what, the basic search was dignity. Dignity for individual dignity, national dignity, national pride. And the question was the adaptability to the new international context. And I gave this example there. My, I have a daughter now 14 years old. She, two years ago, I went to Istanbul. Istanbul for me is a place to escape not from Ankara, but from boring official dinners, meetings, and everything. And I have a library, which, a library house, which I prepare to write books, but now I can only go once a month. And I went there with my daughter. I was reading some books and writing. My daughter from another room shouted, Father, Father, I thought that something dangerous is happening. I went, she showed me my typewriter with which I wrote my PhD thesis in 1980s. She said, what is this father? <laughs> As if she discovered an archaeological uh, discovery from Roman Empire. I said, this is typewriter. She said, for what is this? And I explained to her, she started to, I found and I bought from an old uh, store, I bought the, these uh, uh, parts of typewriter and she tried to write. I wrote this is the speed of change. For her, it was like 
1,000 years ago. It was 25 years ago when I wrote my PhD thesis. I said in Egypt. I went to Egypt in 1988 when I was writing PhD thesis with that typewriter. I was in Egypt in American University. That time Mubarak was in power. Then computer came, Mubarak was in power. <laughs> Mobile phone came, Mubarak was in power. <laughs> Facebook came, Mubarak was in power, but he was not able to resist Twitter. Why I am giving this example? Right at the beginning, the flow of history is fast, and Mubarak was trying to keep Egypt as if Cold War is continuing, as if he can tell his people, look, Israel is threatening us, we have to have an autocratic regime, or you have to listen to me. No. Young generation doesn't listen to anyone except their own conscience. We, and my old generation, is questionable, but we should understand that new conscious of young generation in order to respond for the future and understand their psychology. Why I am giving this example? In Syria, now people are claiming that this is a sectarian war or religious war or regime, Syrian regime wants to make it a sectarian war in order to continue to be in power through consolidating a minority regime based on a minority uh, army. No. No Arab young, uh, young uh, revolutionary was looking for a sectarian or ethnic revival. They were looking for a new political order, domestically, in Tahrir or in Tunisia or in, today in Syria. I saw many Christian and Alawite revolutionaries in Syria in Homs leading uh, the, the, the demonstrations. Because for many years, Syrian regime tried to keep them in that order. You may ask, why did you have good relations with them? We tried to, to make this change from within, not like imposed from other side. Therefore, we, we had free trade agreement, we had uh, visa-free regime in order to open Syria to the world. In fact, with that opening, Syrian people saw other experiences, other uh, models, and wanted to have the same. Here, domestic challenge in this political restoration is legitimacy. When we came to power in 2002, in one uh, interview, one of the first interviews, I identified six basic principles of new Turkish foreign policy. The first principle was a new domestic culture based on a balance between security and freedom. Without that legitimacy and balance, you cannot have a foreign policy. If you sacrifice security for freedom, you will have a chaos. If you sacrifice freedom for security, you will have a dictatorial regime. Both of them will be seen illegitimate by the eyes of the people. In fact, Arab young generation everywhere in the Arab world wanted to see this balance for many decades. Arab leaders, they told to this, their people, we are at war against Israel or we are at war against another country or there are so many challenges, they may be pro-West or pro-Soviet based on that challenges. Therefore, don't ask freedom from us. 
We will provide you security, but you will not ask freedom. If you ask me as a political scientist, the ultimate goal of political legitimacy is if a state says to the citizens, I will provide you maximum security without limiting your freedom and maximum freedom without risking your security. That is the ultimate search of all human beings from the time of Adam and Eve and until now. Therefore, in Turkey, in the last 10 years, we tried to democratize our country. For Turkey, also, several years, I remember, during, Professor Pamuk remembers, we were almost same generation, 1970s, every winter, we were expecting that communism will come and we will die. Every winter. This winter, communism may die. Why this fear? In order to keep certain status quo of security, of an elite. So in order, because of fear of uh, communism, we were, uh, uh, we were accepting the autocratic regimes of uh, 12th of September, military coup d'etat or others. And every summer in 1990s, because of PKK terrorism, we were scared Turkey will be divided. If a country is having such a psychology nation, being divided, being threatened, that country cannot act rationally. What we did in 10 years in Turkey is, first we addressed to, to the self-confidence of our people. Today, Turkish people are confident. They are not scared of being divided or they are not scared of being invaded. They are not scared of any other nation. Therefore, I especially use the term, the second principle, zero problems with our, other, with our neighbors. Why? Because without changing the psyche of the people, you cannot motivate people. And for many decades, Turkish young generation, including us, we were trained that Russians are arch enemies, Greeks are now uh, co uh, contemporary enemies, Arabs betrayed us, Armenians, we have problem. With that psychology, you cannot be proactive. Again, some nations have this psychology regarding to Turkey, some other nations. But what we should do? We should change, we should make a psychological revolution first. That was the reason. Of course, I know history. I know that even brothers and sisters may not have zero problems at home. But important is you have to make your nation confident, psychologically well established. If you have such a uh, uh, self uh, uh, pro problem of uh, div uh, divided self of identity, then you cannot motivate people. Now, Arab nations today want to do the same, either in Tunisia, in Libya, in Egypt, in, in uh, Syria. They want to have a new political system which doesn't ask them to sacrifice their freedoms for security. This is what they want. They want to be secure and free at the same time. Is it possible? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. Then who can be against these uh, voices of people? In that cabinet meeting, we decided that we will support these legitimate demands of Arab people wherever they are. Therefore, we supported Tunisian Yasmin revolution. Therefore, we supported uh, Tahrir uh, Square. Therefore, we supported Yemen. Therefore, we supported people in Benghazi. I was the first minister of foreign affairs landing in Benghazi during the war.
it is a risky uh, process. There are many dangers, there are many risks. But if history flows, and you see that flow, you cannot be secure of risk being away of that flow. You have to understand, and you have to respond to this properly. Now, we can make an, uh, 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 an analysis in last three years. 2011 were the years of revolutions in all these countries. 2000, especially in North Africa. 2012, <coughs> elections being conducted, many new govern, uh, uh, elected governments, parliaments being established. And 2013, this year we will have elections in almost all of these countries for permanent governments and parliaments. This is a success. And I salute Arab nations because of this success, despite of all the difficulties. We should not forget that the deconstruction of Cold War structures in Balkans continued 10 years with the support of European Union money and NATO security umbrella. Was it easy for uh, people of Romania to remove Ceausescu? Was it easy for Bosnian people to resist against Cold War logic of Milosevic? In early days of uh, Arab Spring, I, gave, I was asked to give a lecture in uh, Al Jazeera forum. I said the title was, has history arrived? Has the future arrived? I said, not only arrived, it has delayed. It should have been 20 years ago. Now we have challenges in Syria, and it is a big test for international community, for regional countries, for Turkey, and for Syrian people. Every night, before sleeping, I am making my <coughs> own personal uh, uh, assessment of our performance. Did we do correct? Did we do enough for Syrian people? Because history will judge all of us. If we are silent to this oppression, why then do we need all these political objectives? There, are, there will be many more challenges in the region, but at the end of the day, the new regional order in the Middle East should base on, like in Europe, what I told in Europe, should base on high-level political dialogue, a common security zone, an economic interdependency and a cultural inclusivity of city life. We are looking and we are working for a new Middle East, run by the people of the Middle East, not imposed by outsiders. We will respect borders. We will respect all nations. But like Europe, European Union, we have to make these borders meaningless because all the borders in the Middle East are artificially uh, drawn. We have to see this fact. Tribes being divided, families being divided, cities, towns being divided between Turkey and Syria. Who divided? The natural connections were lost. Now this will be restored. Therefore, as Turkey, our regional vision for the Middle East is one day we need to have a new regional order, economically integrated, politically uh, uh, well uh, structured, based on legitimacy, and a common security zone. This is what we need in the new Middle East.
So, in short, there are big challenges in global transformation of world politics. There are challenges for Europe, for Middle East. But at the end of the day, it is we who will decide what will be the future. All of us, either academicians or statesmen or students or intellectuals, we have responsibility today at the, at, right at this moment of history to understand the flow of history for our nations and for all humanity. Then we hope there will be a new world order based on peace and harmony. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Davidolu. Um, you have offered us a sweeping vision of the challenges being faced by world politics, but you've also offered us a very precise statement of the principles that guide Turkish foreign policy today. In our conversations, private conversations in the past, I always remember you emphasizing uh, that uh, how much you like teaching and how much you like the university atmosphere. <laughs> and I could tell today that uh, you very much enjoyed it, we very much enjoyed it, and you felt very much at home. <laughs> yes. Of course, part of this ritual after the lecture, then we will have to take some questions. Um, so, um, if I may, I will take two or three questions at a time, and then uh, you can answer them at your leisure. Let's let's begin upstairs. Yes, Gent yes, Gen gentlemen there. Yes, you. Yes, please. And then we'll go up to you. Uh, thank you very much for your talk, Foreign uh, Minister. My name is Feng Xue from RC. Uh, my question is, uh, what's your comment on the next uh, Tuesday's uh, uh, Istanbul conference called by the Syrian uh, opposition uh, organization? Because uh, they are going to elect a new Prime Minister in next Tuesday's uh, meeting. And it seems that there is some uh, incoherence uh, among different factions within the opposition party. Uh, what's what, your comment on that? Another thing is, uh, uh, from a Turkish point of view, uh, what's your hope for the reform of the United Nations? Thank you. Okay, I will take two more, but may I just emphasize that please be brief and ask a question. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Minister, for the very informative speech. You have made clear that your uh, overarching paradigm in your approach to foreign policy is actually ethics. So particularly departing from that standard, shouldn't you be more, uh, more cautious before uh, so readily glorifying the emerging regimes in the Arab world? Because we, are we so sure that... Uh, they are really uh, pro-democratic, and the, the emerging order will include human rights uh, and full-fledged democracy and women's rights as well. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the lady there at the back, in black, yes. Yes, and we'll take that third one. Yes, please. 
Uh, following on that question, also in terms of, in, in your view of the Middle East, um, noticeably absent from that talk was Iran. So Egyptian President Morsi has invited Iran to come and visit Egypt, which the president did, and now they're having more diplomatic relations than beforehand. How does Iran play into this new Middle East global order? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Minister. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, about, uh, let me answer first uh, UN reform, because the others, Syrian opposition and the regime, they are all connected to each other. Yes, uh, first of all, is it necessary, UN reform? Yes. Is it easy? No. Why? Because any reform should be accepted by UN Security Council. It means any reform could be vetoed by five permanent members if that reform, reform threatens their status. This is the basic problem in UN. If you want to reform UN, you have to uh, be able to uh, be imaginative, thinking to restructure UN Security Council because this is the most efficient body organ of UN. But uh, the existing structure of UN and the uh, rules and procedures for reform of UN is preventing you because assume that today I can tell you at least a, not cosmetic, meaningful, but a, a change could be Two-thirds, if a, this, a resolution being adopted by UN General Assembly by two-thirds majority, that should be accepted by UN Security Council without any uh, right of veto. That will make uh, at least uh, close this gap. But five, <coughs> five will not accept this because that will weaken their status. This is the main problem. Otherwise, in UN there has been several conferences, meetings, groups for UN reform, but until now nothing has been produced because of this main uh, principal problem that the existing statute quo is preserving itself with certain rules they established. This is main issue. About Syrian opposition, uh, first we have to understand the structure of Syrian opposition. Uh, for more than three decades, four decades even, there was no opposition in Syria. So they didn't have any experience to get organized or to have a, a structure. Now, in last two years, again, knowing them personally, I can say they made a huge progress developing their political culture, understanding each other from different political groups some are nationalist, some are Islamist, some are pan-Arabist, some are Kurdish, some are Arab, some Turkmen, Christian, Muslim, Durzi, Nusairi, Sunni, all. Now, despite of all these weaknesses, I think I, I trust on Syrian people in the sense of their uh, uh, historical experience as well as uh, intellectual capacity. Uh, they are well-educated people, very uh, civilized and urban for uh, uh, many centuries. Therefore, I am very hopeful, despite of all these weaknesses. I can give you one example. Aleppo is under war. Now, civil war is continuing in Aleppo. Recently, 224 representatives from each constituency of Aleppo came to Antep 
and they made their own election to establish a, a, a municipal council of Aleppo. During the war, they are conducting elections to run their uh, life. We have to help them. No nation can learn everything in uh, difficult times. But those nations who accept these challenges can write history. And I think if a nation like Syrian people resisted against snipers, artillery shells, airplanes, air bombardment, and now against Scott, I think they can uh, uh, do and they can create a success if they let on their own. The second question about the new emerging regime. It is interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, a student, yes, yes. It is interesting in, in, if we are in, uh, we, we think from the perspective of role variable as a uh, uh, old minister of foreign affairs or academician, I would be more status quo oriented and more reluctant and young generation should be more revolutionary, <laughs> like you. And if you tell me, as a young student or academician, that the new uh, emerging regimes uh, will be a risk, yes, there is always a risk history in history. And those who wrote the history, they are those people who accept those risks. Your... Uh, your question should be, the alternative is, what is the alternative? Should Assad or Mubarak or Qaddafi or Bin Ali continue to run the country? Can this, this political culture survive in uh, the new uh, international environment? That's the question. If not, then you have to accept the challenge. And in the last three years, as I said, they made a huge success. Assume that I was giving this lecture three years ago in 2010 here in LSE. And if I would tell you that there would be an elected president in Egypt, there would be an elected president in Tunisia, in Libya, elected governments and parliaments in all these countries, would you be seeing this something possible? No. Nobody would imagine that Arab nations, especially Orientalist ones, those who would claim that Muslim culture is not uh, uh, compatible with democracy and Muslims could be run only by autocratic regimes and leaders. They wouldn't believe in this. But today, there is an elected president in Egypt. We know the difficulties Egypt is facing. It will not be easy. But if Egypt is successful, all the others will follow. There is an elected president, prime minister, parliament in Tunisia. Abu Azizi, when he burned himself, I am sure, he didn't imagine and dream that his suffering will create a new political system. What is our position? Our position should be supporting them. Rather than questioning whether they will be successful or not, we have to support them, show solidarity. Therefore, last year, I mean, a few months ago, we... Uh, decided to uh, give $500 million to Tunisian government, $2 billion to Egyptian government, just to support their economy in order them to make them successful. And this country, Turkey, who was giving this money, 
uh, to these countries was asking money from IMF 10 years ago. We know what means economic crisis. We didn't discover uh, new oil uh, resources or natural gas in the last 10 years. I am sure 10 years ago, if somebody would tell that Turkey will be giving to these rising democracies 2.5 billion in one month, nobody would believe. I am sure if somebody told us 10 years ago that Turkey will be member of UN Security Council with 153 votes, a record in UN history, nobody would believe. I am sure if somebody told us told 10 years ago that Turkey would be opening 24 embassies in Africa, four in Latin America, and will be ninth biggest country represented in the world, nobody would believe. The important is self-confidence. Again and again I am repeating. Pride and self-confidence. Dignity. These are the principles who motivate people. Not fear, not reluctancy, not questioning whether they will be successful or not. If history flows, as I said, you have to do whatever is necessary for your nation, for your uh, people, and for the humanity. If you are reluctant, if you question, will that go to the right direction, then you will, you will be out of that river and out of that history. Instead of questioning, it is better to be part of that history. That's what we are trying to do. Yes, very good observation that I did not refer to Iran, because the question was not just Middle East, but the question was global transformation, etc. And therefore, I didn't make special reference to Iran. But let me say first, and I have been in Iran several times, and I am an admirer of Iranian culture. There are certain civilizations which you cannot understand other civilizations if you do not understand that civilization. When, now I am writing a new book on uh, uh, historical depth, which was I, I was planning to publish 10 years ago, but, but because of this, I, didn't, uh, I wasn't able to write it because of these missions. I will just write an introduction to historical depth. When I analyze our historical depth as Turkey, from Central Asia, through Iran, Selçukis, then Safavids, through Mesopotamia, Artuklu, Ayyubids, mixing with Kurdish Mesopotamian culture, Arab culture, in Anatolia, mixing with uh, Roman Empire, Byzantine tradition, Mediterranean culture, Turkish cultural identity is multidimensional because we are a nation of moving, movement. Therefore, when I uh, tried to uh, lift uh, the visa restrictions, that was my philosophy. Some people try to keep tur Turkish people in their villages or in urban areas, in, in cities, wherever they are, like uh, in 1940s, 50s. If they move, it is dangerous for the state. But our approach is the opposite. We, are, we want to mobilize our people. Because the only asset what we have in our hand is human resource. They should, they should move. Our entrepreneurs, our students, our academicians, when they are stagnant, they, they are being spoiled in the history. Turkish culture is being shaped through movement and migration up to Central Europe. But Iranian culture is 
a geographical culture where they are more permanent. If I compare Roman and German culture, this is Turkish and Iranian culture. And therefore, Iranian culture has a great influence in Turkish culture, in Arab culture, like Mevlana Celaleddin Rumi wrote Masnevi in Persian. Why I am giving this historical detail? Because nobody can ignore Iran. Iran has been a strong historical tradition, civilization, and will continue to be influential. In the existing political uh, uh, atmosphere, we hope Iranians will understand the flow of history properly. Because of knowing the significance of Iran, we work very hard to resolve Iranian nuclear issue. I visited Iran eight times in seven months in 2010, from 2010 November until May, when we signed Tehran Agreement, Turkey, Brazil, and Iran to resolve Iranian uh, nuclear issue problem with uh, IIEA. And still, I believe that that was a missed opportunity. And still, I believe that that was the only text to resolve this issue. We will be helping to resolving this nuclear issue because it is creating a, a problem for the region, for the international uh, environment. And therefore, the technical meetings of P5 plus 1 and uh, Iran will be held in Turkey soon, these coming days. We will help in resolving this. Our position is clear regarding to nuclear issue. We don't want to see any nuclear uh, power in our region, neither Iran, nor Israel, nor any other country. But we believe that all uh, nations have the right to have access to nuclear uh, uh, program, peaceful nuclear program. Coming to regional politics, unfortunately, especially regarding Syria, we have serious disagreements with the Iranian side. Because for Iran-Syrian uh, case, crisis has been analyzed, isolating from the Arab Spring. They praised Egyptian revolution. Therefore, as you said, I was there when President Ahmadinejad visited Egypt for uh, OIC meeting. And we encouraged Egypt and Iran as two great neighbors to improve their relations. They praised Tahrir uh, revolution, but they sided with Bashar Assad and became silent against uh, his oppression and killing Syrian people. If we want to be part of a new regional order, we should agree the same principles, respect to uh, demands of the people, dignity, equality, non-sectarian approach, cultural inclusivity, and economic interdependence. But we kept our dialogue with Iran in understanding and approaching uh, to this Arab Spring from the same angle. We will continue to keep this channel open, but we hope that they will also understand these new regional dynamics. A new region is emerging. Those who will be supporting these new dynamic forces will be the main uh, actors of uh, this new regional order. Minister Davidolo, I, I know time is running short. Uh, can we have another round?
Okay. The lower okay. level. Okay. Yes, we'll start with you, second and third, yes. Now, with the lady, and then we'll go to you. Okay. Three, yes. Minister Davutolu, my name is Ivaila Ivanova. I am a local staff at the Embassy of Qatar here in London. Embassy of? Qatar. Qatar. And an LSE alumni as well. Um, I just had a question if you could, um, in the context of uh, uh, the transformation in world politics, make some comparisons between the innovative uh, politics uh, in, in the innovative foreign policy of Qatar and what uh, Turkey uh, is trying to do in normative. The, just comparison Turkish between and the, Qatari foreign policy. Yes. Okay. How any similarities and um, differences? Okay. Thank you. Tanku Tersashkin College, PhD studies. Um, so you said one of your statements that uh, Mavi Marmara incident is similar to 9-11. Uh, uh, in that context, what has changed in the region after the Mavi Marmara? Mm -hmm. Okay. Then we have third, yes. Hello, my name is Yunus, and I'm the head of Politics Committee of the My Life, My Say. Um, I would like to thank you for your refreshing speech. It was a really nice and a uh, different perspective of, of what you hear from other speakers. In recent years, Turkey has focused on rebuilding its old cultural ties in the Middle East and Africa. Is this a sign of Turkey turning its back on the, on the EU membership? Mm -hmm. East Africa. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Thank you. Okay. Please go ahead. Okay, thank you. Yes, uh, Qatari uh, and Turkish foreign policy. Uh, we have been working very closely with Qatari leaders, and even today I had a meeting with the uh, Minister of uh, uh, State in charge of foreign affairs, Dr. Uh, Dr. Bader Khalid. And especially regarding to Arab Spring, we have similar, same approach. They have been supporting these demands of the people and Turkey. Uh, having the same position, we have coordinated our foreign policies in the region. And even before, like resolving the uh, uh, political uh, crisis in Lebanon, I went to uh, Lebanon in January 2011 with Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Ahmad bin Jassim. So there has been a good coordination, both with Qatar and GCC. But of course, uh, the uh, assets and uh, Characteristics are different. Turkish geographical location and Qatari uh, geographical location in Gulf. Uh, Turkish geographical size and uh, access to Western uh, world through NATO, EU, and Qatari access to GCC. But despite of these differences, different characteristics, they are compatible. When you come together, you can use these assets in an appropriate manner to create a synergy. Therefore, uh, these are very uh, uh, good examples of how two countries can cooperate. We have a similar good cooperation with Brazil, for example, although in another continent, or Sweden uh, in certain issues to resolve. Uh, and this cooperation will continue. Of course, another important uh, or unique characteristic of Qatar is Al Jazeera, the, the communication power. And that has been used by Qatar as a new force uh, in all these dynamic situations. About Mavi Marmara, yes, I said this, because uh, everybody should uh, understand the pains of each other. I told that Mavi Marmara was 9-11 for Turkey in order to address 
to American public opinion that they have to understand our feelings because first time ever a regular army of another nation killed our civilians and citizens in, territor in international territorial waters and they were not uncontrolled terrorist groups, a regular army. Therefore, our position has been very clear from that day until now, until Israel apologizes, pays compensation, and ending blockade against Gaza, Turkey will never normalize relations. This is uh, important. We don't need money from Israel. Compensation is important. Why? Because they should know that there is an accountability in international relations. Unfortunately, Israeli uh, governments, they don't think them uh, as accountable. Other nations should follow the rules. They should be member of IAEA. They should be following NPT, but they are not member of IAEA. They can have nuclear power. Others cannot. Everybody must respect international uh, law uh, in uh, international sea. They are, uh, they are free. This cannot be continuing. If there is a regional order in the future, then Israeli governments and Israeli elites should understand they will be equal to other nations in this order. Not uh, looking from uh, up to down or uh, being uh, uh, seen as a privileged in international system. And this policy will continue because this is uh, for us an issue of national dignity and I hope Israel will understand the new dynamics of the region and will adapt to these dynamics. Otherwise, they will be losing uh, in this new uh, regional order because these new dynamics, new democracies in the region will have to listen to their people rather than advices coming from abroad. East Africa, uh, yes, I agree there is an opening, uh, there is a new African strategy in Turkish foreign policy. New and one of the main uh, uh, columns of our foreign policy. Therefore, we opened, as I said, 24 new embassies. And this year, we will be opening another two. And we will be having, end of this year, 36 embassies in Africa. In, until 2010, we had only 12. Now we have 35. 34 and will be 36. And in my book, Strategic Depth, I said Turkey is an Asian country, a European country, an Asian country, and an African country as a neighbor to Africa and part of African history. Uh, Turkey has a multidimensional geography and multidimensional history, which I tried to explain before. Therefore, none of these characteristics is an alternative to the other one, exclusively alternative. We will continue to be very active in European continent. As I said, European history cannot be written without Ottoman archives. And European future will not be specified without Turkish contribution. We will be in Europe. Nobody can uh, give us an impression that we will be out of Europe. No. Turkey will continue to be one of the main actors of European history in the future. Everybody must understand this. But at the same time, this does not mean we will be forgetting Asia or Africa. We have strategic uh, council mechanism with Russia, strategic partnership with China, external relations with Japan, India, Pakistan, and all Africa, Asia, as well as Africa. There is a new strategy for all Africa, 
but especially for East Africa. This, uh, we have uh, opened embassies in Tanzania, Kenya, Somalia, uh, Ethiopia, Uganda, and this year we will be opening embassy in Eritrea. And in, uh, in order to help them to resolve their issues, like Sudan and South Sudan, two, three months ago, both ministers of South Sudan and Sudan visited Ankara, and we are trying to help them through confidence-building measures.